What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done and what God commands should always be done. All right. We are in a culture that is obsessed with technique. (laughs) What I mean by that is that we spend all kinds of time and money uh, perfecting technique and the how we do things uh, and sometimes miss and ignore the why or, or the heart of things when we're very, very focused on the practical ways in which we do things. Uh, this, an easy one to pick on would be uh, in the checkout line at the grocery store and you see the magazines, right? And it's, you know, 10 tricks to improve your love life, right? It's technique-oriented. Uh, you're, you're never going to see a headline on the, the supermarket tabloids that say, you know, you should, uh, you should consider what it means to, to have a marriage that reflects uh, the love of Christ and his church and mutual submission, uh, understanding the other love language, or the love language that your, your, your spouse uh, receives loving, you know, that's not going to be the headline. It's going to be technique-oriented. Or perhaps uh, for parents here, um, you know, we want to know the shortcut to raising brilliant, happy kids. And there's a book that uh, has been really helpful for Summer and I called Brain Rules for Babies. It's written by a guy here in Seattle named John Medina, who is a brain scientist. He's written a number of books around what we know about the brain and how it works best. And this book is oriented towards how do babies' brains develop best. And one of the rules that they have, uh, that they've discovered that actually has been really formative for Summer and I and is is a big, uh, a big motivating factor for us in our work in the foster care system is that babies' brains develop best when they sense that their environment is safe. Right? When a baby's brain does not have the sense that its environment is safe, uh, it kind of goes into survival mode, and it, it, the normal functions of the brain don't develop like they should. But when it knows that it's safe, when it knows that it's secure, uh, it, it grows and it thrives and it develops. And so uh, there, there's an anecdote in the book that is, uh, is stuck with me, where he, John Medina is speaking to a large audience, and he's taking some question and answers, and, and one guy stands up and basically asks, you know, what do I do what can I do to ensure that my preschooler will get into Harvard? Right? What can I do? What, what, how early do I sign them up for preschool? What are the programs I can enlist in their learning? And his response was, go home and love your wife. That's what you can do. That's the best thing that you can do to ensure the, the success of your kid. Um, sometimes our obsession with techniques turns into a reliance on technology. Uh, and I'm... I'm Pretty sure I'm not the only one who's experienced this, but Summer and I have been married for about ten and a half years. And at the time that we were getting married, the the Google universe was expanding, or at least I was becoming more aware of all the different things that Google offered beyond email and search, like calendar and spreadsheets and documents that you could share. And uh, I I was convinced that the ability to share our calendars with each other via Google 
was going to transform the way that we merged our lives together. These two independent people who'd been living on their own for a while as we merged our lives together. Uh, the ability to pull up my calendar and see her events in a contrasting color right next to it, problem solved. Yeah, you're laughing, appropriately so. Uh, turns out we still needed to talk to each other. Uh, and it also turns out that we actually view our calendars in profoundly different ways. This has been an area of our marriage that has, has been one of the ones that we've needed to work on the most. It's taken a lot of work and conversation and love because we fundamentally view our schedules and our calendars differently. Summer likes to know when things are coming up. She likes to be able to plan for them. She likes to be able to prepare and to look forward to them, to anticipate them. I like to look at my calendar and see big chunks of empty space. And if I look at my calendar and I don't see big chunks of empty space, I start to get anxious. And so I, I, when I look at my calendar and I, I see those big chunks, I, oh, I can relax and rest. And when Summer looks at her calendar and she can see those things that, she, that are on there for her to look forward to, that's when she can relax and rest. And so we have had to learn uh, that we cannot rely on this technique and this technology to sort of magically fix things. But we actually have to do some really good work at communicating and, uh, and loving each other in ways that are not native to ourselves. Right? We have to kind of step back into that bigger question of how do we in our marriage, how do we mutually submit to each other the way that uh, Christ calls us to? A couple of examples there of the ways that we lean on technique and technology uh, uh, in ways that are perhaps uh, harmful, harmful to us. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were also very concerned with technique, with the how, with the, very, the particulars of how it was that God's people were to follow God's law. Very concerned with it. For example, uh, they took the commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, they expanded that simple command to something near 800 pages of very specific rules about what exactly constituted work and what did not. They were very concerned with the technique and the very specific details of how do we follow this law. Uh, for example, is it work to move a lamp on the Sabbath? And if so, how far could you move it? Uh, those were the things that, uh, what's known as the Talmud, uh, all of this reflection of, of years of people, uh, of these of religious leaders contemplating, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? They had taken the gift of God's word and, and made it a burden. And throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, and we see these tensions and these conflicts arise where, where they're both wanting to honor the word of God. They're both starting with the law and wanting to honor it. But the Pharisees want to dig down deep and, and get all in the technique. And Jesus is constantly bringing them back to the heart, constantly working to bring back to the center the purpose of the law. Our passage today comes from Matthew 22. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, uh, uh, it'll be on the screen and it's, it's towards the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus, it's a series of interactions that Jesus is having with different groups of religious leaders. And they are out to trap him. They are out to get him. And so they're asking him these questions that aren't really questions, right? They're trying to get him to say something 
that they can then accuse him of blasphemy because he said something wrong. So the Sadducees approach him and they ask him a question. And it's actually, if you read 21 and 22, you're going to see some sarcasm that Jesus has. There's some biting sarcasm in here. Jesus is funny and not always in a you know, super nice way. <laughs> uh, he, he's trying to highlight just how wrongheaded they are as they approach the law. And so he rebukes the Sadducees, and the Pharisees are like, oh, dumb Sadducees, you guys didn't know what you're doing. So they then approach Jesus, trying to trap him, trying to ask him a question that they think is a no-win, a no-win question, that no matter what he says, they're going to get him. And this is what happens. This is Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. It should be on the screen. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, One of them, who was an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Would you plant in our hearts these two commandments? And would you enable us to live them out in every area of our life? We need your help. Help us, Lord. Amen. We are made for love. The heart of God's law is love. And this is not often how we think about law, or God's law in particular. But the heart of God's law is love. Jesus is not actually saying anything new here. He's quoting from what was his Bible, what we call the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. But as he closes, he says that the rest of it, right, the law and the prophets was their way of saying all of God's scripture, all of God's word, all of it hangs on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. There's, uh, it, it, this, is, this is part of the cheekiness of Jesus here, right? The Pharisee asks him, what's the single greatest commandment? And Jesus gives him two answers. <laughs> um, and there's something to the order of these two commandments here. That the love of God fuels and gives warmth and gives resources and power and direction to the way that we love our neighbors. Right? These, are, these are not two ways of saying the same thing, but they are very, very intimately connected. That our love for God as that grows naturally overflows and spills over into our relationships with our neighbor. They're distinct but inseparable commands. Uh, there's a uh, uh, I believe this is actually part of the New City Catechism. For those of you that don't know, we're, we're walking our way through this uh, modern take of some old questions that the church has been asking and answering for a while called the New City Catechism. And uh, one of the readings in the devotional guides from John Calvin, and here we are approaching the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. So I thought it appropriate to quote Calvin. Uh, and I think this might be on the screen as well. Love for our neighbor will never flourish unless the love of God begins to reign. 
And the love of God cannot reign without breeding a brotherly and sisterly affection. They're intricately connected, these commands. And in answering this Pharisee's question, Jesus is calling us, calling them and calling us back to the center, back to the heart of what it's all about. It's about love. It's about the love of God and love for neighbor. And the technique, it's not that the technique doesn't matter. It's not that how we love doesn't matter. It's that it, it, that comes after. That, that, the, the way that we love will come after the growing relationship between God and between our neighbor. If you've been here at Sanctuary long enough, you've probably heard Randy say, love is like a box of crayons, which is it's similar but different to life is like a box of chocolates. Uh, it's his way of saying that the way that we love uh, might need to look different in different situations, that there is a, an ability and a freedom that we have in the way that we love each other, in the way that we love our neighbors, depending on who we are, how God has made us, who they are, the situation that's required our, our love for our two-year-old uh, looks very different than our love for our six-year-old. And that's because of their personalities. That's because of the ages and the ways that, uh, for our two-year-old, part of the way that we love Caleb is by creating more strict boundaries, right? He needs to know that you cannot put your finger in the light socket. You just, you cannot do that. Alistair has a little more freedom as a six-year-old. There's a little more trust there. And I, as he ages, our, the way that we love him is necessarily going to need to look different. We're going to have to pull out some different crayons from the crayon box. This can be challenging for us because I think that we have these pharisaical tendencies where we want rules, we want clarity, we want, we want to know specifically how to do this. We want the technique, right? But Jesus calls us back here. He says, no, 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 come back to the heart. The heart is love. The heart is love for God and love for people. One of the, the commentaries that I was reading this week talked about Jesus uh, as a centrist. And the, the way that we normally hear that word is in the political spectrum, right? If you're a centrist, if you're, you're, you're not fully right and you're not fully left, you kind of, maybe there's certain issues where you're more left or certain issues where you're more right. And while some of that may actually be true about Jesus, <laughs> uh, the point of the, of the commentary was that he, he pulls us constantly back from talking about the boundaries and the rules and co- constantly pulls us back to the heart. Jesus is far more concerned that we are centered and close to the center of things, which is God, rather than that we have clear-cut definitions and boundaries. Jesus is a centrist in that way, always pulling us back to God who so loved the world he gave his only son, to give life, eternal life, starting now to whoever would believe in him. As Jesus summarizes all of the law and prophets with these two commands, they become then for us kind of the rubric, the the filter through which every way that we respond to God and and every way that we live in this world can be thought of as a way in which we are loving God and a way in which we are loving our neighbor. It also becomes a way that we, uh, a filter or a lens through which we read scripture, right? He, he says, this is all of the law and the prophets are brought together in these two commands. And there's, there's much of the Bible that we can kind of gloss over pretty quickly and think, oh, I don't, 
that's written thousands of years ago. I don't really know how to apply that particularly to my situation these days. Um, and this is where I think as we read all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, through the lens of these two commands, that our response to God is all wrapped up in a loving response to him and a loving response to each other. Um, that helps us, I think, take some of these commands and make them applicable to us. An example would be, uh, a week and a half ago, I helped to facilitate a conference here um, called Common Good 2017, and we had a couple of different speakers sharing about how their work uh, was a part of, of God's pursuit of the common good in our world. And one of the most compelling ones was a guy named Brian Bauer, who works at Boeing. And Brian works in the finances, uh, the finance department of Boeing. And his job, which is, this is crazy to me that there's a job like this, but his job is determining how much an airplane is going to cost Boeing to build in 10 years. And then how do they resource that now in order to prepare for that 10 years from now? So he deals in finances, but he also deals with finances like way up here, right? At a pretty theoretical level. And he was reflecting on Proverbs 11.1. The Lord detests the use of dishonest scales, but he delights in accurate weights. And Brian has spent a great deal of time thinking and reflecting on this particular law that God has given us, this particular passage, and what it means for his work. How does he, as we talked about, this, this summary becoming a lens through which we view scripture, how does he love God and love his neighbor in his work by paying attention to dishonest or honest scales? As he was sharing some about his work, uh, and some of you may know more about this than I do, I'm sure, uh, you, I tend to think of money as pretty black and white, right? Like it either adds up or it doesn't, and you want it to add up. And, uh, and as finances get more complex and more theoretical, interpretation of finances becomes more crucial. What, how do you interpret the data that you have becomes uh, more and more an important part of the job. And there are ways that you can interpret the data that benefit you, but may not be fully accurate. And he was telling a story of a situation where he actually had to push back against his team. And he said, I, what we are doing is not right. It benefits us. We come out looking good, but it's not, it's not accurate. It's not reflecting God's delight in accurate weights. And he got pushed back. Um, and other people who have done this in other industries uh, have lost their jobs for doing this. That was not his story, by God's grace. But um, hearing him talk about this little proverb about honest and dishonest scales and what delights God in the way that he does his work, that it can reflect a love for God, that God, that when, when an honest transaction takes place, that actually brings God delight. That's not neutral. God like rejoices in that. That's what this proverb's saying. And in his work through Boeing, he serves people. He loves people, though sometimes it feels pretty far removed from the actual work he's doing. He has to remind himself that his work at Boeing ultimately is a means of loving his neighbor. And that affects how he works. That affects his day-to-day his -day job.
One final thought here on how we love our neighbor. Uh, In the Greek, in this passage, the word neighbor is singular, which is interesting. There's, There's a lot of good work being done and more needs to be done on how the, the systems and the, the we find ourselves, I mean, we prayed about this earlier, we find ourselves within these broken systems, right? These, these ways that are uh, an example uh, that has come to light here in Seattle, right? Is the, the way that many of the property deeds were written to include very, very racist, exclusionary um, uh, points to, to the deeds where they, you know, this plot of land was only to be leased, only to be sold to Caucasians, right? That's, I mean, this is like part of the historical record of the property deeds in our city. This needs work, clearly. Clearly we need to work on this. And, but if we stay at the level of systems uh, that can that can keep us from engaging sometimes the individual. And I think that the, the challenge and the first step for us is to engage with individual neighbors. And so my challenge, uh, and this was a challenge for me as well this week, uh, is not to say, I love God and I love my neighbors, but to say, I love God and I love Galen. To put a name in there, to put, a, put several names in there. I, I was spending time reading and preparing for this uh, in our offices up in Upper Crust, and I, I spent some time out in the, the catering area that has windows that overlook 85th and Greenwood. And I just, I watched, I people watched for a while. And this neighborhood, you guys, is full of fascinating people. I watched the world go by, right? Businessmen and women, people who sleep outside, women with headscarves, there's a Tibetan uh, Buddhist monastery down the road with their, their kind of red and orange uh, gowns that they wear walk by. Moms with strollers, dads with strollers. And I was overwhelmed. Here I am reflecting on Jesus' call to me to love my neighbors. And I'm, there's so many. The need is so great. Uh, and then later that day, I went to the Green Bean and the whole reason the green bean exists is for this second commandment, right? How are we going to love our neighbors? Well, we've got to know them. We've got to have a place to interact with them. I went to the green bean, and as I was walking back, I passed Marcos. Um, some of you know Marcos. Marcos has been going to the green bean longer than I've been going to the green bean. He's been around the neighborhood for quite some time. Um, and I, I, I just, I heard that, love God, love Marcos, Right? Put a name in place of neighbor to begin with. This is where we start. It's a cup of coffee with Marcos. It's the time to, to stop and, and talk to Yadira, who serves us pizza regularly at, uh, at Razi's, to ask how she's doing, to love her. And as we do so, as we put specific names at the end of that command, we have to remember the, the other part. It's not just love your neighbor, it's love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, and Dale Bruner, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Matthew, uh, 
reflects that, that by adding this as yourself to the end of this command, what that does is that engages our empathy and it engages our imagination. That that is, that is the way that we love our neighbor is by putting ourselves in their shoes and by asking how would I need to be loved were I in their position. And there are no clear-cut rules for that, right? There's no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. We have, a, we have a box full of crayons to color with. Um, and so that would be my, my challenge for us this morning as we think about living out this, this huge call to love God and love our neighbor, but to remember that this is, this is Jesus calling us back to the center, calling us back to the heart. And that as we do this, to ask the Spirit to help us to engage our imagination and our empathy as we put names in place of neighbor. You're probably thinking of a couple right now. Don't ignore that prompting. Trust that that might actually be the Spirit speaking to you about who it is in your life that you are called to love and what might be that imaginative, empathetic way that you can love them the way that Christ has loved us. There's a, a, a bedrock truth that undergirds these commands to love God and to love our neighbor. And that's this, God loves us. That's the first thing that happens. First John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. The only way that we can respond in the way that Jesus encourages us here, the way that he commands us to love God and to love neighbor is because we know we know how we have been loved. And that's, that's what we celebrate here every week. That's what we remind ourselves is God's great love for us in Christ. His sacrificial death, the power of his resurrection that enables us to actually live and respond to these commands and the ways that we're called to. So as we come to the table this morning, you may need to confess that you do not, that we do not live up to the law. We, we cannot possibly, in every moment of every day, fully fulfill this law that Jesus has laid out for us to love. But we trust that we are forgiven because of God's love for us. And not only are we forgiven, but we are empowered then by the Spirit to live creatively, to live in freedom, and to truly love our neighbors and to love God. So let's pray and prepare our hearts to come and receive this gift. God, forgive us for when we are so focused on the rules, on the boundaries, on the particulars and the technique. Draw us back always to the heart, to your heart, the heart of the law, which is love. We have to acknowledge, Lord, that we fail constantly in loving you and loving our neighbor. We can't gloss over that. Forgive us for our sin, Lord. 
the things we have done and the things we have left undone. But Spirit, we ask that you would empower us and embolden us as we live our lives, as we speak to our neighbors, as we sit next to people on the bus or in a classroom, as we work with our neighbors. Continue to put specific names in place of neighbor and give us the creativity, the imagination, the compassion, and the empathy to love well. And we trust that as we do that, people will see not just our good deeds, Lord, but that they will see you through our love. Thank you, Lord. Amen.